Hello and welcome to the Ecomedics podcast where we explore how the health of our planet affects the health of the people on it and how we as healthcare professionals have the power to lead the way in curbing the climate crisis and to be pioneers in building sustainable healthcare systems. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Ashling, a junior doctor and member of the Ecomedics team. And we have an incredible lineup of guests who will be joining me on each episode to share their experience and expertise about health and the environment. I'm very excited to introduce Rita Issa to the podcast. Rita is a qualified general practitioner but her expertise spans from public health to refugee medicine to the effects of climate change on health. An activist for over 10 years, she has fought hard for social justice, working with Greenpeace, MSF and the World Health Organization to deliver programmes that encompass the wider social determinants of health to ensure access to healthcare for vulnerable populations. In her own words, she believes that communities hold the answers to our most pressing challenges and as such, her work is in building community power and amplifying grassroots stories and solutions. She has appeared on several media outlets as an expert in her field and has written as a columnist for The Independent. Rita is a keen advocate for addressing climate change, currently conducting research on the topic of climate change, migration and health, and has co-founded Doctors for Extinction Rebellion. What an absolute privilege to have you join us today on the Ecomedics podcast. I have so many things I'd love to talk to you about. First of all, wow, when I was first researching potential guests for the first series and came across your work, I was completely in awe at the work you've done. Anyone who knows me will know that I share many of the same passions as you. So at risk of sounding like a fangirl, I can't (laughs) wait to pick your brains today. I love it. (laughs) So many of the conversations on this podcast revolve around how we in the health sector can work to mitigate the progression of climate change. But of course, another reason for health professionals to be so invested in this is because of the health impacts that climate change poses on health. Please, could you talk us through some of this? So the way that I like to think about the impact of climate change are the direct impacts, the indirect impacts, and then I guess the sort of tangential impacts. And um, climate change is going to lead to a heating planet, and that's going to have a direct impact in terms of heat and, and places getting hotter, and it's also going to influence various weather systems. And so the direct impacts of climate change are the results that happen as a res- you know, uh, directly as a response of the weather changing. So that is exposure to heat, things like heat stress, um, cardiovascular illness, respiratory illnesses as a result of that. And uh, some of the research that I'm doing at the moment actually is looking at the impact of heat on um, humans' abilities to live in various environments. And what we know about heat is that um, heat impacts different populations differently. So we're going to have vulnerable populations, most affected children and older people, pregnant women. And also different populations have different abilities to mitigate the impacts of heat. So, um, for example, people are able to live in uh, the United Arab Emirates, even though it's very hot, because there are processes and systems in place to help relieve some of that heat, um, such as air conditioning. I think that's like a really basic (laughs) example. But I guess sort of related to that, there's what we're seeing increasingly in, um, in UAE is reports of 
um, migrant construction workers um, who uh, succumb to the effects of heat and have um, impacts such as heat stroke um, or even death as a result of working in hot conditions. So they haven't necessarily got the access to some of the AC or the different facilities? No, exactly. Exactly, exactly. So we know that these different sorts of weather effects are going to directly impact people differently. Um, And then also the effects of extreme weather events. So so things like um, cyclones, hurricanes, extreme flooding. Um, And those are going to impact um, both human health and also the ways in which humans can live on this planet. We're already seeing so many of those effects in the last few years with the forest fires, with hurricanes, and it just seems like we're already starting to see that all play out. Yeah, definitely. Um, or Yeah, it's already happening. And what we can see from the modelling is that realistically, um, extreme weather events are going to become more extreme and they're likely to become more frequent as well. And then... The way that our climate um, impacts all of our other sorts of systems is, I guess, the indirect impacts of climate change on on human flourishing. And so that's everything from how the climate interacts with our food systems and our ability to be able to grow healthy and nutritious food, um, the places in which we can live. So, for example, uh, coastal communities being affected by sea level rise or um by saltwater intrusion, so uh, saltwater coming in and basically meaning that agricultural, you know, agricultural land is no longer viable. Um, and then also the impacts that our weather systems essentially have on our socio-political systems. And so there's been a lot written about how various environmental factors can then influence even things like, um, like conflict and political change because it causes, I guess, societal unrest, and that leads to these um, to these various challenges. One of the areas that I research is how climate change um, is and is going to continue influencing human migration. We've already seen what a sort of charged and political space human migration is, and realistically, that is going to get worse um, significantly in the coming decades. And if we're not able to manage it now, <laughs> then um, it really concerns me to think about how we are going to be, how we're going to respond to, um, you know, potentially a billion people who are forced to move as a result of their environment no longer being habitable. So really, within our duty as health professionals to protect our patients, fighting to stop climate change is very much integrated into that duty because we're going to start seeing, and we already are seeing, seeing so many of these effects happening to our patients. Yeah, for sure. And I guess like we know as health professionals that there are a whole host of factors that contribute to somebody's health. You have your physiology and your um, genetic basis, but then so much of that is influenced by the environment that you grow up in. And we know that even quite distally, it's also influenced by things like the country that you're born in, the colonial history of the country that you're born in. Like all, all of these factors influence people's health. And I guess the question which I started to ask myself pretty early on at medical school was, where does our duty as doctors and health professionals end for our patients? For example, if I were to leave my clinic and see somebody collapse on the street, do I have a duty of care to them? If I know that um, a patient is well now, but some of their behaviours or activities might impact their health in 10 or 20 years? Do I have a duty to engage them around that and to offer health promotion advice? 
if I as a GP know that somebody has a Q risk, so you know their cardiovascular risk is above 10%, would I be negligent if I didn't offer them a statin? Under our current guidance, yes, potentially. But what we can see with climate change is that climate change is projected to significantly impact human habitability and human health. A question for all of us to consider is where does our duty as uh, people whose you know, work it is to promote and safeguard health, where does our duty to our patients end? Do we have a duty to act on climate change as part of our role as doctors? I would argue for me, yes. I don't expect every single doctor to be doing it, but I think that it would make sense for a good proportion of doctors um, to incorporate that as part of the work that, that they're doing. And here in the UK, how soon should we be expecting to see some of these changes or what changes are already happening in terms of the climate? Yeah, so I guess earlier on, I, you know, I mentioned that in the framework of how climate change impacts health, we have our direct impacts, our indirect impacts. And I said, we also have our tangential impacts. And what I mainly think of with that is the impact of air pollution on health. And so air pollution isn't a result of climate change, but it's one of the things that is driving climate change. And primarily I'm thinking about the burning of fossil fuels, mostly through um, you know, cars and other vehicles. And where I work in Tower Hamlets, um, children have a 10% reduced lung capacity because of air pollution in that area. So already we are seeing that um, the direct health impacts um, of you know, one of, the, one of the main contributors of climate change, we're seeing that directly impacting my patients. In the UK, we have 210 deaths a day as a result of air pollution. So that's the same as a double-decker bus every day. And I think air pollution is a really, you know, I, I think it's quite a cool thing to think about. Because <laughs> taking action on air pollution not only, you know, helps us to mitigate and reduce the impacts of climate change, but the alternative um, modalities that people that people then switch to, so for example, moving to active transport, so walking or cycling, we know that that's also good for health. So the way that we conceptualize this is, as you know, it, they're they're known as health co benefits. So it's good for the planet and good for people as well. I guess more broadly, in terms of climate change, I would argue that there are some climate effects that we are already seeing in the UK. For example, flooding. And that is something that I'm sure that we're all aware of <laughs> happens in the UK and um, is happening more frequently than before. Interesting when you said about the um, co co health benefits. Something that um, that came up in a recent podcast interview with Hugh Montgomery was that um, it surely isn't a coincidence that all the things that help the planet also seem to be helpful to our health. And I just found that a really interesting concept. Yeah, for sure. And I really, um, I think when we start to consider ourselves as beings who are codependent on the planet, um, that we are part of the earth, and that what is good for the earth is also good for us. I think that that's a really um, key, It you know, to a certain extent, it's almost spiritual. I think it's a really helpful framing. So yeah, for too long, we have had this separation between ourselves and the natural world. And we also need to remember that we live within a closed loop system. We we exist on this planet in, a, I guess, a sort of similar way to our bodies exist in homeostasis. And if we continue to pump toxins into our bodies and don't remove the waste, then we will become ill. And that is what we're seeing happening to the planet. 
As a high-income country like the UK, largely protected from severe weather events, apart from some of the flooding that you've mentioned recently, and with plenty of access to food and water, it's easy to be naive about the fact that for many populations, climate change is a very real and pertinent issue now. It's not something that's a looming future problem. Many communities are struggling from the effects already. Would you mind talking to us a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So climate change is really an issue of justice. And I think that also for healthcare professionals, it's important for us to consider what exactly that means. So climate justice is a term that's used to frame climate change as an ethical and political issue. And it's rooted in the fact that most of the people who are going to be most impacted by climate change are those that have had the least part to play in causing the problems. And so when we look at our historical emissions, so not the emissions that are currently being released into the atmosphere and how those are geographically distributed, but emissions that have happened since the mid sort of um, 1800s, that is very much skewed to Western Europe and the US, essentially. We are countries which are not going to feel the majority of the impacts of climate change just based on our geography and where we are and also based on the current systems that we have in place. And so when we look at, for example, places which are going to see the most um, migration as a result of climate change, that's Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia and the Caribbean. Those are regions of the world who haven't had much to play in terms of contributing to climate change and also remembering that they haven't had the benefits that we have had, the economic benefits that we have had of using fossil fuels for the last 150 years. And so I think one of the things that we need to consider within that is how do we how, how do we bring about justice? How do we redistribute some of that inequity? And how do we ensure that we step up, recognize the sort of benefits and privilege that we've had from um, using fossil fuels in the ways that we have? And how do we use that wealth and that the power and positionality that we have on the international stage to advocate for uh, yeah for countries that are going to be most at risk. Do you think enough of that is happening? I think there is a slow movement towards it. So in the latest IPCC report, there was um, for the first time mention of indigenous communities and the wisdom that they hold. So there is there is a movement towards that, but in no way is it uh, is is it happening on the scale at all that is required. I mean. Coming out of um, COP26, country agreements have us on track for about 2.4 degrees of warming. And um, what many of the countries that are going to be most affected are calling for is 1.5 degrees of warming. At 1.5 degrees of warming, we are already going to see huge amounts of displacement, significant disruptions to food systems. But it keeps us hopefully within, you know, concerning tipping points. And at 2.4 degrees of warming, there is going to be significant, significant knock-on effects for all of these communities. So, uh, no, we're nowhere near where we need to be. It's, it's so frustrating because, as you said, it, it is so much a responsibility of ours as the countries that are skewed towards using most of the fossil fuels and contributing to the to global warming and to climate change that our governments and the people in power, the the big corporations that we're not doing enough, what is it going to take to try and convince them? Because did you say that you've been to the COP26 this year? Yeah, I I was there. You were there. Yeah. And when I listen to some of the facts and when I hear people like yourselves talking about the realities of what we're facing now, what we're expecting to face, I find it really difficult to understand that 
these politicians and these businesses also have these facts to hand and it's not shocking them into wanting to make any change what is it going to take for these these bodies yeah um I mean I've spent a long time thinking about that and um I oscillate between huge amounts of hope and then (laughs) occasional hopelessness but I think at the moment, the way that climate change is put forward, essentially, we need to stop extracting at the rate that we're extracting. We shouldn't really be extracting more fossil fuels. And that has significant economic repercussions for um, the people who are currently in power. And so it makes sense to me that that they will continue to do everything within their power. And remember, it's it's quite sizable power to, um, you know, reduce their economic returns. I think that that's like, um, at a fundamental, like essentially, yeah, fundamentally, what's going on. So the finances are playing a huge part in this. Yeah, and I think it's also that we feel bound to a specific way of life. We have normalised ourselves to um, existing with a level of convenience and speed that um, that relies on um, extractive capitalism, basically. But what we also see is that way of living is not good for human and planetary flourishing. We have um, record high rates of non-communicable diseases. I recently read that six out of 10 uh, people in the US have a long-term health condition. We have record high rates of burnout, uh, anxiety, depression. People aren't seeing their families as much. People aren't in their communities as much. People don't spend as much time outdoors. And we think that this is the peak of human evolution and I don't necessarily think that it is. And so part of what I think needs to be done is reframing the action that can be taken on climate change as being something that will ultimately be of benefit to us all rather than it being sold as something which is going to mean that you can like never travel again and you have to, you know, only eat vegetables that you've planted. Like I don't think that that you know it, it, it doesn't have to be a sort of terrible monastic life that everybody moves towards I think that there that there can be a middle way which um, encourages planetary flourishing and also human well-being and just in terms of what you asked about how do we bring about action on on this you know how, how do we encourage um politicians and um the industries that are most consumptive to change I mean, there's loads of different means and clearly no one method works because if it did work, we would have done it by now and it would all be sorted. And something that I wrote about recently was this concept of theories of change, which is essentially this like socio-political area of study, which looks at how change is brought about within political systems. So I guess within the broad spectrum, spectrum of different forms of theories of change, there's different ways of delineating it and so you can have broadly what's known as like insider or outsider theories of change and so insider theories of change will be attempting to change systems from within and so that might be something like doing an audit um uh training healthcare professionals uh working with your local trust to um, get them to change their policies and it's um collaborative i would say it's a relatively soft power so you know, working to meet somewhere in the middle and working together to try and bring about change. Outsider theories of change are on the whole a bit more oppositional. You know, it might be that people don't have access to those inner echelons of power. And so the way that they try to um, influence them is, for example, 
you know, protesters going and sitting on the street. And that might be like an outsider form of theory of change. It's a little bit more oppositional. Maybe their demands are a little bit more radical. Um, and the approaches that they use might be a bit more radical. Um, so, yeah, lo lots of different ways. And I think that within a healthy ecosystem, we need all people, you know, working at lots of different levels. <laughs> and I think that also relates to the fact that people's different personalities or backgrounds or upbringings or values affect how they would like to sort of advocate for some of these changes so I think that's really important because some people feel really confident to bring things up at work or to protest or be very loud about their views whereas some people do better in maybe doing some of the audit work and using facts and, and measuring the changes that way and I think that's really important to remember that there isn't one size fits all in terms of bringing about change and bringing about awareness. Yeah for sure I mean what I would call an activist and it's a very broad definition there's somebody who recognizes that there's something wrong with the system you know they get a sense of injustice and um, their boundaries have been crossed in some way and then they just decide to do something about it and the, what they decide to do about it can be a whole host or a whole range of things. And I think it's just remembering that there's legitimacy and I, I would say legitimacy and benefit in different forms of actions. One example is the suffragettes and the suffragists. And many of us have heard of the suffragettes and not many have heard of the suffragists. But the suffragettes were the sort of outsider oppositional group, you know, smashing windows, jumping in front of horses, doing all these like big, bold actions. And simultaneously, the suffragists were liaising directly with politicians and working through sort of more insider consolidatory processes to also influence change. And I think the reason why they, to me, work quite well together is that outsider groups, just by virtue of the way that they operate, can call for more radical demands. So Doctors for Extinction Rebellion, for example, um, aligned itself with the Extinction Rebellion demands, which was decarbonisation by 2025. That is quite an extreme demand, um, really difficult to bring about, and also questions of whether it would even be just to bring about a transition that quickly. At the same time, an insider group um, was working called Health Declares a Climate Emergency, and they were calling for decarbonisation by 2030. 2030 is also quite bold and quite, uh, you know, um, it, it will require a real concerted effort to achieve it by 2030. But because there was another group calling for 2025, suddenly 2030 seems very reasonable and manageable. Like a compromise. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so that's known as shifting the Overton window. So what acceptable policies are. So Excel was able to pull it over to 2025, that me which means that people coming in calling for 2030 suddenly seem very reasonable, whereas 10 years ago, they might have also seemed very radical. A huge thank you to this episode's sponsor, CeeLo. CeeLo is a messaging app designed for the specific use of healthcare teams. Not only does CeeLo make it easy for teams to collaborate, but it's completely secure and compliant when it comes to sharing any patient data. With features like the secure library, CeeLo allows you to capture images and store them securely in the CeeLo network and share them with your colleagues. It's like WhatsApp, but for healthcare teams. Just search CeeLo Health in your app store and download the app for free. It's spelled C-E-L-O. Visit www.celohealth.com to find out more.
Rita, as an activist yourself, you have advocated in several ways for the causes you believe in. I'd like to read an excerpt from the Doctors for Extinction Rebellion website. It states, we have carefully considered our position as a highly respected group of professionals publicly backing and acting with a group which commits to breaking the law may seem like an unusual move. But we believe that the severity of the crisis is so great that such a decision is justified. I'd love to hear more about this and your thought process behind founding Doctors for Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, so I guess I've been involved in politics and activism in different forms um, since quite early on at university. I was at university when fees were set to rise from £3,000 to £9,000 and that felt hugely unjust at the time. A lot of students had voted for the Lib Dems on the promise that they wouldn't raise fees and suddenly um, in a new coalition government they turned, turned back on that promise. And lots of different universities at the time went into student occupation and UCL went into occupation, which is where I was studying. And that six weeks of time taught me so much about questioning norms and questioning the status quo and questioning who has power and who decides, who makes decisions on my behalf. And I guess through that process, I then, I felt like my eyes suddenly (laughs) opened up to all the different forms of injustice and all the ways in which, to me, people were disabusing power, essentially. And I'd always been interested in and and passionate about climate change. And I tried lots of different means to bring about change in that. So I worked in the WHO's climate change and health department. I was um, very much involved in the fossil fuel divestment campaigns, including the divestment campaign at the British Medical Association. And I became a sort of junior doctor rep trying to bring about change through institutions like the BMA. And I was also um, in the early 2010s involved in a movement called Climate Camp and went along to some of their sort of campsites that they would host at fracking sites or whatever else. And so I'd tried a whole host and range of different activities, both sort of insider and outsider activities. And then in 2019, Extinction Rebellion came quite rapidly onto the scene and It was after a period of a number of years where there hadn't been very much public protest in the UK. It, at first at least, felt very um, vibrant, very inclusive, uh, decentralised. So, yeah, so I went along with some friends and it was just like a, it felt like a place of joy, essentially. And a whole host of people just wanting to make a difference about this thing that I really cared about. What quite quickly happened was that politicians and the media started turning around and saying, you know, dismissing the protesters as being uncooperative crusties. And what I knew was that the protesters were people like myself and people like my friends who were concerned professionals and concerned citizens. And so a few of us came together and we thought, how can we use our um, our voice, our respectability, our privilege in society as these, yeah, you know, respected professionals? to add weight to the arguments that Extinction Rebellion is putting forward, which is why we set up Doctors for Extinction Rebellion. And it was um, something that we didn't go into lightly because I really recognised that, you know, doctors are, well, nurses are the most trusted professionals and doctors don't come very far behind. We um, have authority when we speak. We have scientific legitimacy. We understand science. We know how to translate quite complex scientific information into information that our patients can understand. I felt that there was a role there for doctors to be able to advocate and to add their weight within that process. But also we didn't want to do anything that would um, jeopardise the position that the medical profession has. You know, we didn't want to 
we didn't want to run the risk of being unprofessional. And so we looked quite closely at the GMC's um, duties of a doctor. And it felt like actually we did have a duty to act because GMC Good Clinical Practice says that we need to hold human life with the utmost respect. We need to practice from scientific evidence base and we need to act promptly when patient safety may be compromised. And, you know, the UCL Lancet Commission on Climate Change, which had come out a decade before, had already said that climate change was going to be the greatest threat to health of this century. Hmm. And so clearly we were acting from a scientific basis and we were acting within our duty to uphold patient safety. That sounds like a really difficult balance to get, especially with, I saw recently that there were some doctors that were protesting with Doctors for Extinction Rebellion that were being arrested, you know, that were having interactions with the police, which often you don't really hear about in the media, that kind of interaction between doctors and and the police. It's not really something that happens very frequently. So that is changing sort of the landscape of how we're viewed as a profession so I can imagine that must have been quite difficult to get that balance and I wonder what kind of response you've had. Yeah I I would say that one of the most powerful moments for me quite early on in the Extinction Rebellion protests was when a line of doctors and other healthcare professionals all dressed in scrubs went and stood directly sort of face to face with a line of police officers And we are, you know, we're all emergency services. We're used to working with the police most days in our, in our work. And I, yeah, I think it made for an incredibly um, moving and powerful image because I I think it just goes to say that, you know, we wouldn't take a decision like that lightly. And I guess it kind of relates to what you were saying earlier about that shift in perspective and questioning the norms and the way of life that we're used to. So as you just described, I haven't seen any footage of it. I can just picture it, what kind of emotional response that would create seeing that kind of image. Yeah, I mean, in a way it was quite funny because the police were there standing around a roadblock and then they were trying to bring down some protesters from it. And then the doctors started giving them advice and then suddenly everyone remembered, oh, no, we're, you know, we're not working together right now. <laughs> and so just, I think it's, um, it's like discordant in some way. Mm. And, but I think that there's power in that. Um, and also remembering that we are, you know, we're, we're doing this for police officers too um, and their children. And actually, we've had police officers come and join us. So, yeah, I, I, I think that there have been police who've seen the protests and then said actually you know what maybe you do have a point (laughs) and let's get on board just to also say about the questions around professionality and whether you know whether we should even have been taking those actions in the first place quite early on um when we started doctors for extinction rebellion we were able to publish with both the lancet and the british medical journal articles around what we were doing and richard horton the editor of the lancet basically wrote an editorial in support and said that all uh, health professionals have a duty to take action on on the climate. And what we've subsequently seen is that for the doctors who've been arrested, and just to say I've not been arrested, that's not something that I've decided I feel ready for, <laughs> but for the doctors who've been arrested and then who've ended up going to GMC tribunal around it, nobody has had to stop working as a doctor. So um, the track record so far, not to say that this wouldn't, you know, that this might not change, but the track record so far is that if you are engaging in non-violent protest and you are not fraudulent, then you can maintain your license and you can continue to practice, which I know is a huge anxiety for a lot of people and a lot of the reason why people, um, you know, might not want to be arrested in the first place. 
That's so inspiring, though, especially for the people that maybe hadn't known that track record before they did it for the first few doctors that were arrested. That's just such a huge amount of courage to to take that step and be willing to, to make that kind of sacrifice for the cause that they believe in. Yeah, yeah. Although, it, I, I mean, it's, it's incredible and it just brings like tears to my eyes even thinking about it. But just to say that for each one person that gets arrested, you probably need between five and ten other people around them doing other things to support them in that process. And that's everything from um, coordinating social media, doing pastoral support, organizing meetings, writing press releases, uh, you know, doing interviews, coordinating with other groups. You know, there's so, so many different roles. And so it doesn't mean that if you get involved with an activist uh, movement like Extinction Rebellion, that you would have to get arrested. That is not, you know, you can never guarantee that you wouldn't be, but... On the whole, the only people who've been arrested are people who've wanted to be arrested. There seems to be quite a mix of people in the group, which demonstrates that people who are fighting for climate justice aren't exclusively hippie, animal-loving, hemp-wearing, off-grid communities, <laughs> or like you said, crusties, I think you said. But no, this yeah, group is... Boris an Johnson e- said. <laughs> oh, gosh. But this group is an example that it's scientists, doctors, well-researched individuals who are scared about the future. And just for the record, there is nothing less valuable about those hippie, animal and hemp-loving yeah. <laughs> But the point I'm making is that there there are people who are part of this movement that I've seen on the Doctors for Extinction Rebellion Instagram page who are older health professionals, some of them never having been involved in activism before, but they feel no other option than to join this cause. Mm. Yeah, and there's a really powerful interview with a few doctors who, who were arrested, one of them who had been you know, a GP for decades, um, in her own words, a lifelong conformist, she doesn't like upsetting people. And she felt like she'd done everything that she could through the insider means. She'd written petitions. She'd um, worked through her local CCG. You know, she'd done all of these things. But the more and more that she read of the science, the more she felt like she couldn't sit by while there was such inaction going on. That was a decision that she came to herself. And, and you know, the, the only step that she felt like she could take was by, I guess, putting herself and her job on the line she was one of the first to get arrested. She didn't know that she wasn't going to be struck off. So yeah, it's a, a huge personal sacrifice, but for something that she and many others feel is worth it. And what kind of response have you had from colleagues, family, friends, and the wider population to the group? Yeah, I guess um, in terms of colleagues, family, and friends, all have known me to be very much <laughs> interested and engaged in these issues for a long time. So family and friends it's just like part and parcel of what I get up to I'm really lucky to work at a GP practice that's very radical very environmentally friendly and uh, has a history itself in terms of the partnership of doing things which have been relatively like visionary and also disruptive and so my workplace has also been incredibly supportive of the work that we're doing in general what we found with uh, Doctors for Extinction Rebellion is that when we started And quite rapidly, we grew to a network of over a thousand health professionals, people coming forward and just incredibly, incredibly grateful that they had found community and connection in others who cared about the issues that they cared about. You know, we had um, one doctor in Cornwall saying, I have just been alone trying to, you know, a medical consultant, I've just been alone trying to bring about these changes, feeling like nobody else cares. And suddenly I'm connected in with a whole bunch of other health professionals who care about this as much as I do. And there's something so, so powerful in finding your community 
in whatever that looks like because we are facing a daunting huge task and things are just going to get more and more challenging with time so in order to be able to maintain resilience and maintain hope through that process i think it's incredibly important to find people who will boost you who will bring you joy who you can um, work with and who have a sort of similar dream for what the world can be and if people wanted to get involved how would they so there is a couple of ways of getting involved with Doctors for Extinction Rebellion. You can find our Facebook group and send us a message on there. You can uh, follow us on Twitter and send us a message. And you can also email admin at doctors4xr.com. That's admin at doctors4xr.com. You can only be part of the group if you are a registered health professional or medical student. And we do ask for some form of ID to be able to enter into our mailing lists and our um, various other communication channels, just because we want to make sure it feels like a somewhat uh, safe space where people can speak openly about their concerns and what they might be getting up to. Brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to us about that. It's so interesting to hear about some of the work that you're doing. I just wanted to go back a little bit and talk about a few more of the projects that you've been involved in. Mm. In an article that you wrote for The Independent following your expedition on board the Greenpeace ship to the Maldives, you described how 80% of the islands are less than one metre above sea level. Given that the current projections, which have historically been underestimated, it's suggested that our sea levels are set to rise by 1.1 metres in the next 70 to 80 years, which means that in my lifetime, I could experience countries like these simply disappearing, which is just unfathomable. Can you talk to us a bit more about this trip and, and the lessons that you learned? Yeah, so I was really fortunate. I finished my GP training and that same week I was contacted by Greenpeace saying, might you be available to get on a boat next week? And this was during the second lockdown and everything was a bit sort of grey and miserable in London. Um, and they had two boats. One was in the North Sea and the other one was in the Indian Ocean. And so I uh, went out, had 10 days of quarantine and then got on the boat and then was on board for 62 days without stepping on land, which was quite an experience in and of itself. And the reason that I was on the boat primarily was to be the ship's medic in case anything were to happen to anybody there's a medic on board because we were incredibly remote. We were far out into the Indian Ocean. At one point, we didn't see land for three weeks. And so there's a small hospital on board and you can provide sort of medical support for the crew. And my other sort of day job was as a deckhand. So just helping out with other things that needed to be done on the boat. And that was quite a steep learning curve. I'd written a little bit for The Independent before I went out. And I mentioned to my editor there that, um, you know, that this trip had just come through and she said, oh, why don't you write a series for us? It was a very interesting and steep learning curve just to really better understand how pivotal and how crucial the oceans are for maintaining our sort of planetary well-being and human health. And that exists through various different facets. I mean, we are so dependent on the oceans for multiple, multiple reasons but uh, the oceans are a huge source of carbon capture and absorb a lot of carbon dioxide and through that are becoming increasingly acidified. There's lots of potential in terms of seagrass meadows and how they might be able to store carbon for us and they're much more effective at doing that than land than land forests. There's a lot to be said in terms of how we feed humans and also in terms of sort of economic dependence that a lot of coastal communities have on fishing and how that's being disrupted by industrial fishing 
And then also in terms of coastal communities and the exposure that they have from extreme weather and also from sea level rise. And it was incredible actually arriving at the Maldives because we'd not seen land for three weeks. And that morning somebody said, oh, you can see the Maldives in the distance and run out onto the deck. And all you can see is just like tiny palm trees, but no land at all because it's so unbelievably flat and so unbelievably flush to the ocean. The sort of small island states um, have been making demands at COP and at the UN level for years and years and years because those are the communities that are most at threat and most at jeopardy in the case of rising sea levels. I remember seeing some of those interviews as well. Some of those speeches are so powerful. I think it was maybe the Solomon Islands that the leader there was speaking and just saying, we need you to do more and you have the power. We, we're experiencing the effects, but you have the power. So I, I remember seeing that being broadcasted. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's incredibly um, upsetting and also incredibly challenging because sea levels rising isn't an event that happens in silo. It's something that is so interconnected to everything else that's going on. So you can't stop sea level rise unless you also fundamentally change so many other things about the system. And that's where the challenge is because we just seem to be at a sort of impasse of uh, wanting to continue with the same level of consumption that we have historically. And in fact, also increasing our consumption. And that just isn't viable for places like the Maldives. Do you think there is still opportunity to save places like that? Is it already written that we've done too much to prevent these kind of effects happening or is there still hope for it? Yeah, I guess I would like to think that there's hope. We still have a number of years, ever shortening, but we do still have a number of years where we can take action, where we can turn things around. And I also think that, um, you know, there's lots of opportunity in terms of adaptation and mitigation. And we'd already begun to see that in the Maldives where... um, New islands are being built and those islands are being built with uh, the climate in mind and they're considering how to make buildings more energy efficient and streets more friendly for active transport and how to uh, encourage local food growing and, you know, all of these different measures. So I think that there may be ways in which through the process of adapting and adapting to climate change and mitigating its worst effects, it doesn't necessarily mean a worse outcome for these communities. It might also be an opportunity for transforming into something better. That example of the Maldives is a very visual example of a consequence of climate change and in some ways may really hit a note with the general British population as we see the islands of the Maldives as very exotic, picturesque, a luxury holiday destination. But of course, there are so many other populations facing the reality of climate change. A large area of your work focuses on the impacts of migrants. Can you tell us us a bit more about the work that you're doing at the moment and some of the research that you're finding? So some of the work I'm doing in terms of my research is looking at the intersections of climate change, migration and health systems and how we respond. What we're essentially finding with, with migration and migration as a response to climate change, I think overall there generally seems to be a perception that migration is inherently a bad thing but actually migration might well be a very wise adaptive move if you can no longer survive in the place that you're living in so within the migration trajectory we need to consider firstly people that we would call trapped populations so people who are unable to migrate to bring themselves away from areas of climate risk and those are incredibly hard to measure and hard to understand because when people move, we're slightly more likely to be able to engage with them or to be able to, you know, to notice that that change for them. 
So that's like one aspect of climate migration. And then the other is considering how climate change will drive migration and how both climate change and migration can have negative impacts for health and also for health systems. And so considering how we develop health systems that can be climate resilient and migrant inclusive. And so climate resiliency means health infrastructure that is sort of able to withstand the effects of climate change. It also means things like uh, having early warning systems for heat waves, having good data and monitoring about whether, you know, when we might have um, changes in vector-borne diseases, having health workforce that is prepared for climate-related illnesses. And then migrant inclusivity essentially is thinking about how we are able to incorporate migrants into the healthcare services that we currently have and extend our health service coverage to cover and you know to be uh, welcoming to the needs of migrants and so that's everything from how we finance healthcare for migrants you know having things like interpreters and also being um, you know culturally aware within our healthcare system yeah sort of working in the intersection of those three areas and really trying to tease apart more focused areas of study within that. It's a relatively emergent field of study. So there's an international thematic network on it, but it only started about a year ago. And we've just done our first sort of main scoping exercise of just trying to map out what areas need to be studied within it. So yeah, it's, it's growing. And I'm, you know, for me, it's highly interesting because it just bridges all the stuff that I was thinking about anyway and puts it all into one package together. And actually, they are very interconnected. So as you were describing it there, it is it when you say it out loud, it does actually really make sense that those three would be studied together because they do all have a knock on effect on each other. So that sounds fascinating. I'm really excited to see what comes out of some of that research that you're doing. Thanks. (laughs) So I've got some quick fire questions for you, Rita. Yeah, great. If you could give one key piece of advice to people about sustainable living, what would it be? Don't be too hard on yourself if you aren't living up to high expectations that you might be setting yourself on what it means to be somebody who is environmental. It's okay to sometimes forget to recycle. It's okay sometimes if your grandma cooks you, um, as in the case of my grandma, will cook cook me as a delicacy that I loved in childhood, but it contains meat. (laughs) (laughs) That sometimes you have to drive a car somewhere, that sometimes you might want to go on holiday. I think all of those things are okay because... If we become too hard on ourselves about it, then I think that that stifles our ability to believe that we can advocate on a higher or more political level. And fundamentally to me, even though individual action is important because I think it can um, increase people's environmental literacy and environmental awareness and environmental care, ultimately I think we need to have changes happening at the top And in order for that to happen, we need to have many people believing that they are able to demand for it. So don't worry too much if you live your life imperfectly, um, but still feel able to call on our systems to be better. What do you wish you knew sooner? For many years, um, in my early years as an activist, I did a lot of behind the scenes stuff. I would write the press releases, I would help with the sort of like backroom coordinating but I was quite shy and really hated speaking out and didn't really think I had very much to say. I wish I'd known sooner that everybody has something valid to say from their experience and especially as healthcare professionals I think that we have a role to use our voices and so yeah I 
I think it was like a necessary journey for me that it's taken me so long to start like speaking out publicly. But um, uh, in a way, if I could go back and tell my past self, like that would all be okay if I did that, then I think that's what I would tell my past self to do. <laughs> that's so interesting because I think a lot of people have, me included, have this fear of imposter syndrome and feeling that we don't have enough experience or we don't have enough knowledge to speak out. So I think that's a really, really good take home for, for many people that any experience that we have is enough to speak out. Mm. What will you tell future generations about your role in the climate crisis? I would tell future generations that we tried our hardest. We may have been imperfect, (laughs) Um, but I'm sorry. Uh, And that what I would hope for is that even if we don't manage to meet all of the targets or milestones or demands that we're calling for, I would hope that the processes by which we've been organising together will help people feel more empowered and more connected and more resilient. Because as you mentioned earlier on in this podcast, what I fundamentally believe is that we all need to be in supportive communities and that's what we're going to have to um, rely on moving forwards. And I think that the process of organising around climate change with other people is um, a way of building that community. So I hope that that amounts to something at least. Describe to us your vision of a greener world. In my greener world, people will have more time to be with themselves, their families, their friends and in their communities. They will be more engaged in different activities around the community and be involved in uh, promoting a healthy local environment for themselves and for others. There will be lots of active transport, lots of greenery, uh, lots of uh, solar power. (laughs) There'll be true democracy where people feel empowered and have a say in what they do. Work will be something that is highly nourishing and makes people feel like they have a positive role to play in society and people wouldn't feel, you know, sort of shackled by work as something that they have to do just for financial flourishing and there'll be a sort of abundance of of wildlife and we'll rewild in a lot of the UK and other countries and everything will just be green and luscious and, and beautiful. <laughs> oh, that sounds divine. <laughs> I hope we live in a world like that. Hmm. Can the health sector become truly sustainable? I guess partly leading on from the last answer. So I think that healthcare sustainability um, actually requires like a two-pronged approach. On the one hand, we need to reduce the impact that the healthcare sector has, for sure. And we need to consider how we process medical waste. We need to consider, um, you know, our buildings and our estates. We need to consider all the different medications that we're using. But alongside that, to me, a truly sustainable healthcare system also is one which promotes human health and flourishing before people even need to use our healthcare services. And so we reduce the amount of use of healthcare because people generally eat better, our air is cleaner, they're healthier, and they're able to find the support and care that they need, not just from healthcare professionals and not just from GPs. So we would have you know, better social care, better housing services, um, better education, better employment services, and all of that, so that not everything is being funneled through general practice, which I think it partly is at the moment. Yeah, that, that's my dream for sustainable healthcare. I think it can be possible but we need to have enough people who 
believe it able to happen and are willing to be the stewards of that process. Rita, the biggest thank you for making space in your very busy schedule to talk to us today and for sharing your incredible expertise. You've really highlighted the breadth of impacts of the climate emergency and why it's so important for us to take inspiration from your advocacy and play our part in the cause. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Medics is a non-profit organisation challenging health professionals and the healthcare industry to recognise the urgency of the climate crisis and to implement change to become sustainable. To stay up to date with our projects and events and for climate news and sustainability tips, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at eco underscore medics and sign up to our newsletter using the link below or by heading to newsletter.ecomedics.co.uk. Lastly, don't forget to check out our website www.ecomedics.co.uk where you can calculate your carbon footprint, carbon offset your unavoidable emissions, access step-by-step sustainability guides and buy from our non-profit shop with carefully selected sustainable partners. Ecomedics is run by a team of volunteers and all proceeds go into the running costs of the organisation. If you want to show your support, you can also donate by heading to buymeacoffee.com forward slash ecomedics. Thank you so much again for tuning in and don't forget to share this episode with friends and family and on social media. We look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode. Bye for now. Bye.